you would, take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 6. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. We're going to begin in verse number 5 and read and study together through verse number 18. The subject of our passage today is prayer and fasting. I have experienced, and perhaps you have as well, your personal teaching opportunities, or perhaps even disciple-making opportunities in your individual lives, that there's a certain degree of spiritual warfare that comes with preparation for preaching and teaching in these areas. I'm at a point now where when I see a prayer passage coming in a series of messages, I can anticipate that there is a certain degree of spiritual warfare that comes with the preparation for that particular passage that is unique to prayer. The, the only other time or topic that comes close is when dealing with subjects related to marriage and family which is an indication to me that Satan has not only a direct interest in the destruction of marriage and family, but also in besetting our prayer life, the fellowship that we enjoy with the Lord Jesus Christ through the disciplines of prayer and of fasting. We began to look at the first part of this section of the Sermon on the Mount last Sunday together. We looked at the topic of giving. And how Jesus' interest is not so much in the external, but the internal. Not that we would give to be seen by others, but that we would give out of this compulsion to honor Christ and to meet the needs of those around us that comes from within. A great part of what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount is taking these external religious observances or practices and pressing them to the inside. His interest is not in what might be observed, what might be tangible or expressed visibly, but in who we are in our very heart of hearts. The kingdom concern is not with religious practice, but with the heart of man from which such practices are born forth. Now, we have three topics in a row here in Matthew chapter 6, giving and prayer and fasting. And the way Jesus frames them is to set them up as gauges for our walk with Jesus. If you really want to know where your heart is, uh, your, your warmth toward the gospel, the health of your walk with Jesus, here are three evaluators for you. Your heart with regards to giving, your heart with regards to prayer, and then thirdly, your heart with regards to fasting. Now, here's the concerning thing. Giving is almost done um, exclusively in a private way. We don't talk typically about our giving. If we do, we do so in generic terms. There's, there, there are cultural aspects to that, but then there's the teaching of the text that we read last week and concerns for propriety there. We're incredibly discreet with regards to giving. But I hear far too often from Christian brothers and sisters about deep and ongoing struggles with regards to prayer. It's, it's concerning the number of people that I hear from, the conversations that I find myself entering into where people are confessing extended seasons of their life when there's just no prayer or there's real struggle with regards to prayer. Now, that's not to belittle those who might struggle at knowing how to pray best or uh, some of the mechanics of prayer. We're going to work through those things this morning. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the general absence of prayer in the average Christian life. 
that is an indicator of, of some really dangerous stuff. At its heart is pride. The idea that we're able to manage most of the circumstances of life on our own. We don't know so much need the intervention of God in those areas, which couldn't be further from the truth. Jesus sets prayer up as this barometer for our walk with him. And then fasting. Now, if, if prayer is a struggle, fasting is conspicuously absent, right? So I, I want us to deal with these two disciplines, and we're going to talk through some of the mechanics of prayer and fasting in our time together. But more than anything else, I want you to see the heart of what Jesus is driving at here, that we not be like the hypocrites who are exclusively concerned with doing such things to be observed by others. I, I, I want us to be a people committed to a healthy, hearty, devotional life that our Father who sees in secret might reward us in an eternally significant kind of way. So with all of that in mind and much more, I want to invite you to read with me beginning in Matthew 6 and verse 5. Let's stand together out of respect and honor for the reading of God's Word. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 5, Jesus speaking says, Whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this, Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your father will not forgive your wrongdoing. Whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. There seems to me so much confusion and misunderstanding with regards to the matter of prayer. I hope that along the way here, we're able to clear up a little of that. Look to verse number five. Jesus says, whenever you pray, you mustn't be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Now, I want you to note here that the problem with the prayer of the hypocrite is not that it happens standing in a synagogue. Not that it happens standing on the street corner, but that their motive is to be seen by people. 
There's an egotism. There's a pride that enters into their prayer life. They're positioning themselves, it seems, specifically to be seen by others. But the content, the substance of the prayer, in addition to that, is also focused on appeasing those who can hear them rather than communing with God who is in heaven. Now, there are times when I find myself leading in prayer I'm reluctant to make this confession. I only make this confession because you all are sinners like me and guilty and shameful just like I am. But there are times when you're called upon to pray publicly. It's your responsibility to pray publicly. And in the initial moments of that prayer conversation, you're you're just sort of in, in the moment, you're caught up in the idea of being in conversation with God. And then you say something. There's a nice turn of phrase. And somewhere deep down in the dark, sinful recesses of your soul, you think, I bet they liked hearing that. And it's a complete and total distraction that's born out of pride and nothing else. Now, I share that with you because all of y'all are sinners and you do it too. And if you're honest with yourself, you're as prideful and egotistical as I am this morning. And we all need help in that part of our life. That is precisely the thing that Jesus is warning us against here in the passage. To make of prayer anything other than the fellowship of God with man is to do violence to a discipline that God has graciously granted us that we might have access to the very throne of heaven. The hypocrite wants to pray exclusively in public. Now, I want you to note here that this is not a prohibition against public prayer. I I was in a gospel conversation with a gentleman on Jackson Square in New Orleans, Louisiana, sharing with him the gospel. He was having nothing of it, and I asked if I might pray with him. He quickly called to memory this verse and uh, condemned me outright for wanting to pray with him in this public setting. Now, he wanted out of the conversation was the bottom line, but he had fundamentally misunderstood the nature of the text as well. This is not a prohibition against praying in public any more than the forthcoming passage is a prohibition against talking about fasting with our brothers and sisters in Christ, nor is there a prohibition against giving in a way that would afford some opportunity for others to uh, visibly see our act of generosity or our act of giving. The idea here, here is that we are not driven by the ability of others to see us in our times of prayer, giving, or fasting, but by the knowledge that God who is in heaven sees even our secret acts of devotion and gladly rewards the people of God. The prerequisite, this is, uh, this is important. There is, there is something that is expected, something that is required of those who pray publicly. And the, and the requirement is that you pray privately. And almost always you can pick it out. You can almost always sense it. There's, there's something about the substance of the prayer that suggests it's directed toward the ears of those who are listening rather than the heart of God. When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. They love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Jesus says, I assure you, they've got their reward. If your goal is to win the praise of men, it's a short-term investment. The dividends return rather quickly. But if your goal is to be near the heart of God, it's a long-term investment with eternally significant rewards. 
In verse 6, Jesus says, when you pray, go to your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the idolaters, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't babble like the idolaters. From time to time when people come and they say, I don't know how to pray, often my encouragement is to point them to the Lord's Prayer or the model prayer here in verses 9 through 13 and to say, use this as an outline to hang your thoughts on and to express yourself to God. But in in essence, what we're called upon to do in prayer is to commune with, to share in conversation with God who is our Father. And God, God is not interested. God is not concerned with how articulate you are or how eloquent you are in your prayer. Now, I'm not an, uh, an advocate for or a proponent of this Jesus is my BFF approach to prayer. Jesus is not your bro. He's not some dude. He's not just some guy. We ought to come with him with a great deal of reverence. In fact, we come to the Father the way we come to our Father, with respect, with deference, with reverence. And we clearly, intelligibly communicate our needs with the expectation that our Father understands our needs perhaps better than anyone else in the world. We come to our Heavenly Father in the same way, intelligibly communicating our needs to the God who holds the power to meet all of our needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus says again, when you pray, don't babble like the idolaters because they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Now, this is not, again, a prohibition against repetition in prayer. My deepest and most earnest needs are those that I bring back to the Father again and again and again like a persistent widow. I keep seeking and asking and knocking that God would intervene in my life, that God would meet this need, that God would move the mountains, so to speak. And I come back to God again and again and again, again like a father with his children. When my boys really want to do something, they come back to me again and again and again, and they're hoping that if they are annoying enough, I will eventually yield yield to their frustration and let them do what they want to do. I have come to my heavenly father with the same approach over and over and over again. God, I I need you to know that I need this desperately. I need you to move. I need you to, to relieve this burden, to lift the burden. Like a neighbor in the night, I keep seeking and asking and knocking that God would move in this way. Like Jacob wrestling with God, refusing to let go until he blesses God again and again and again. I need you to know that my deepest need in this moment is this either turn my heart or intervene in some supernatural kind of way that's not what Jesus is describing in our passage there's sort of a Christian version of this and then a pagan version of this Jesus is speaking specifically to the pagan version of this do you remember in first Kings chapter 18 when Elijah does battle at Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal sets up two altars and he says we're going to sort of have the 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 showdown at mount carmel right 
And he says, you, you've been teetering between two positions. We're going to make our minds up as a nation who is God, and that's the God we're going to worship. You get together over here at your altar, and you pray and ask that your God would send fire, and I'll get together at my altar over here, just me, myself, and I, and I'm going to pray that God would answer by fire. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And the prophets of Baal dance around that altar for hours on end, babbling incoherently, mindlessly, the way I would add you see in much of American evangelicalism. And they even cut themselves and they gush with blood, hoping that the shedding of blood would evoke the answer of their God. And you know what happens? Nothing. And Elijah steps over after a period to his little altar and he prays a very brief prayer. It's even shorter in the Hebrew than it is in the English. And fire falls from heaven. That's what Jesus is talking about in our passage. Don't give yourself over to mindless babble the way the idolaters do. Your father knows your needs before you even speak them. Now, there's sort of a pseudo-Christian version of this mindless babbling that we need to be on guard against as well. But it's sufficient for us to know this morning that your babbling or your vain repetition is in no way advancing your cause before God. What he desires is to hear an intelligibly communicated expression of our deep and desperate need for his intervention in our life. In verse 8, Jesus says, don't be like them because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. Think about that for a moment. God knows what our needs are before we ask, them, ask him. Some might ask, then what is the purpose of prayer? Well, for one, prayer was never intended to be a season of uh, simply making our requests known, although that is a fundamental part of our prayer life. God knows our needs before we ask them. In fact, prayer has never been about turning the heart of God. It's always been about turning the heart of man. We spend time in prayer that we might enjoy the sweet fellowship and nearness that we experience there with our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's, it's not about informing God of what our needs are. He knows all of our needs before we ever bring them before him in prayer. There's an acknowledgement implicit in this expression of our needs that he and he alone has the power to answer our needs. He has the power to answer our needs. He alone has the power to answer our needs. I like to make this statement. It can be a little controversial taken out of context, but I think this needs to be said. There is no power in prayer in and of itself. There's just not. The power is in the God who answers prayers. We've misunderstood this and got this all out of whack. And I, the, book of, the book of Hezekiah says every time a person on Facebook says, I'm sending you prayers and good vibes, an angel loses its wings, right? Power in prayer is not about bringing to bear some inner force or energy. It's not about collecting all of our wills and putting them into one combined energy to bring some result about in our experience. Prayer in and of itself, isolated and on its own, bears no power. The power lies with the God who hears and answers our prayers in Jesus' name. That's where the power is. We bring these needs before a God who has the ability to meet all of our needs according to his riches in glory. Don't be like them, Jesus says, because your father knows the things you need before you ask him. 
And then he says, this is how you ought to pray. And I do think, as I said a moment ago, that this makes for a good outline for us, a skeleton to hang the meat of our thoughts on in prayer. Often people struggle with staying on track. We have spiritual attention deficit disorder. We get to God in prayer and there's all kinds of distractions and everything that can happen will happen in those moments. Here's a good way to sort of stay on course. If you could itemize the needs that you might have in your experience or or what you wish to express to God in prayer around the outline that Jesus provides us in the model prayer or the Lord's prayer. He begins here, our Father in heaven. That is, he begins with a note of worship, acknowledging to whom he prays, our Father. I would add, it's a good thing at the beginning of your times of prayer, if you hope to stay on target, if you hope to be attentive to that moment of prayer, to reflect on who God is, the attributes of his character, and just tell him who he is. He loves to be praised. He's seeking those who would worship him in spirit and in truth. Think about his great power. That he has all the power in the world. There's nothing that God can't do. Think about his knowledge. He's omniscient. There is nothing that God does not know. There's not a single area of your life that God isn't keenly aware of. He knows the very hairs of your head. There isn't some distant, undiscovered star that God's unaware of somewhere out there in the cosmos. He knows all things, things that we are even until now completely unaware of. It's a bank of wisdom. Think of his mercy. How in spite of our sinfulness, he has dealt so kindly, so graciously with us. Think about the love that the Father has shown us in the sending forth of his only Son. Now, these thoughts begin to stir in us worship, don't they? And they help us. They, they help us to stay on track and focused. I'll tell you what else they do. They, they really build faith. When I think about the power of God, the knowledge of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, there, there is a growing, a burgeoning confidence in my heart that not only does God have the ability to do what I would ask of him, that God has a keen desire to do what I need of him. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. This is more commonly remembered, hallowed be thy name. God, I pray that not only would you be worshipped by me in these moments of prayer, but that you'd be worshipped by men and women of every tribe and tongue and nation. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy, your kingdom come. This is where we pray for the lost around us. This is where we pray for nations to come to faith in Jesus. This is where we pray that the gospel would make its way to the four corners of the earth. This is where we pray that the Great Commission would be fulfilled, that our family, that our friends, that someone we work with, that someone that we met on the street would come to faith in Jesus, and that God would use us as a vessel to see it be. God, we pray that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is a dangerous prayer, right? This is the very reason many people don't pray. If you're harboring hostility in your heart or you're hanging on to some unconfessed sin, you won't pray. It's like trying to be mad and pray at the same time. Either you stop being mad or you stop praying. Foolishly, there have been a few times when I just had to say, God, I just want to be mad for a minute. I'll be back to prayer shortly. Now, that's not right. It's sinful. It's wrong. But it's an awareness of the fact that these two don't go together. And and your abiding in sin cannot go along with abiding in prayer. 
You know, in the background of this is uh, sort of a, a uniquely Israelite uh, back and forth within the culture. It shows up in a number of places in the New Testament. But when Israel came under Greek leadership and later Roman leadership, they changed the calendar. In the Old Testament, Israel is on the solar calendar. The calendar is set by the sun. But Romans set the calendar according to the moon, a lunar calendar. So it throws everything off, right? If your interest is honoring the Sabbath, it's on one day on this calendar, but it's on another day on this calendar, they're concerned that now we're sort of out of step with what's going on in heaven. Sabbath is this day in heaven, and now we got it somewhere else. So we are perpetually violating the Sabbath. There's a real interest in the culture in making sure that what we do down here is consistent with what God is doing up here. Jesus sort of brings that into the conversation, not specific to the Sabbath or calendar issues, but to say in all of life, we want that what we do here would be an adequate reflection of what God intends for us from his throne in heaven. God, may your will be done on earth, even as it is in heaven. And then Jesus prays in verse 11 for, for substance, that God would provide for them sustenance for life. Give us this day our daily bread. Most of us live with a level of comfort and affluence that, that keeps us from being as sensitive as we should be to how dependent we are on the provision of God. But you've got to know this morning that regardless of what your bank account says, regardless of what your bottom line is, all of us are living from God's hand to our mouth. We need him every hour. God, give us this day our daily bread. In verse 12, Jesus says, pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God, forgive us of our sins. Make confession of your sin in prayer. Acknowledge before God your sins and, and, and ask that God would grant you victory over them. Not just forgiveness for what has happened in the past, but victory and power over them in the days that are to come. God, not only forgive me my sins, but help me to extend the same degree of grace and mercy and forgiveness to those who might sin against me. Verse 13, Jesus continues, Do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. God, protect us from temptation. You know where your weak spots are. You know how you're inclined to sin on any given day. Bring those concerns before the Father and ask that he would protect you, that he would guard you and keep you from yourself and from your sin. And Jesus closes in verse 13, celebrating his power over every area of our life and his ability to see these needs through. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Verses 14 and 15 are here, if for no other reason than to remind us of how desperately we need the work of God in our life, the power of God that's often afforded us through the channel of prayer. Jesus says, for if you forgive people their wrongdoing, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive people, your Father will not forgive your wrongdoing. What God has called us to is the impossible, only made possible, through the work and presence of his Holy Spirit in us. Now, and I, I just need you to hear that this is not Brother Wade's interpretation of this passage. This is not something cooked up in some back corner conversation at one of our seminaries. This is not some off the wall theory. That what Jesus says is that if you don't forgive others their wrongdoing, God will not forgive yours. 
That is the natural product of a healthy relationship with Jesus Christ is that we are now willing to extend the same grace to others that God has extended to us. Now, some of you are harboring bitterness in your heart over petty stuff, and you just need to get over yourself, take a half a baby aspirin, and get over it. But there are others of you who have been hurt in ways that are unspeakable. And I just want to say to you that we have a good and faithful God, a loving Lord Jesus Christ, who draws near the brokenhearted. And this whole idea of forgiving those who have hurt you in these unspeakable ways may seem beyond the scope of reality. It may seem unreasonable. But we have a God who makes the impossible possible through his son, Jesus Christ. Lean hard into him. And what you'll find is the product of his boundless grace produces boundless grace in your heart, even for those who've hurt you the worst. We need prayer because we are so inclined away from what God intends for us. Now, the discipline of fasting is taken up in verse 16. I want us to look there for a few moments. In verse 16, Jesus says, Whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites, for they make their faces unattractive, so their fasting is obvious to people. Now, if I could just take a moment to contend for the discipline of fasting. Almost completely absent in much of the Western church, here Jesus is advocating himself, it seems, for fasting. Assuming that fasting will be an ordinary part of the Christian experience. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter number 9, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus and say, We have noticed that the Pharisees fast all the time but your disciples don't fast at all. How do you answer for this? Jesus says it's not reasonable that you would fast while the bridegroom is with you. But the day is coming when the groom is taken away, and when the groom is gone, then my followers, my disciples, will fast. So the absence of fasting in the earthly ministry of Jesus is, is not a, a cop-out or a, a, an ex excuse for us dismissing us from the discipline of fasting. Here, Jesus assumes that we will, and it's good for the soul, a further means of drawing near to God. Now, you're accustomed by this point to this pattern here where Jesus is warning us against fasting with the motive of being seen by others. He said, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites. They make their faces unattractive. That was probably easier for some than for others. They do this so that their fasting is obvious to other people. They are driven by being noticed by other people for their faithfulness in every area, specifically fasting in our passage. Our goal, our desire in fasting, which by the way is to abstain from food for a season of time in order that the hunger in our belly would prompt us to remember our dependence on God and it would serve as a reminder to spend extended periods in prayer. It helps us to pray without ceasing in the language of 1 Thessalonians 5. Our goal in fasting should be as much as possible for that to be a private act of devotion and drawing near to God. Jesus assures them that the hypocrites will get their reward. They'll win the praise of people. But when we fast, we're to put oil on our head and wash our face. That is, take a shower and fix your hair. 
so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So here we have two disciplines offered to us as a great means of drawing near to God. Now, there's, there's something about this passage that I don't think that I had ever given good attention to until this week. And I don't think that this is a thought that is original to me, but it's worth our noting here. If anything, this week, I have been reminded of the intense temptation that comes with seasons of prayer and fasting. We tend to think that while on the islands of prayer and fasting, because these are spiritual endeavors, that somehow that is sacred ground, that the devil doesn't seek to encroach upon that territory where we have focused our thoughts and our intentions on the things of God. But I'm not sure that could be further from the truth. Think about the life and ministry of Jesus. If you're a student of the Bible and I were to ask you, what were the times, the two times in Jesus's ministry when he was most sorely tempted, what would they be? The first would have to be the temptation of Jesus, right, in Matthew chapter 4. When in 40 days of prayer and fasting, Jesus is again and again and again tempted by Satan. And Jesus, on the authority of God's word, by the power of the Spirit, Jesus perseveres. Jesus wins victory over Satan's temptation in his wilderness temptation. But then the second, perhaps one that is even at the top of the list, would be in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus comes before the Father and he prays, God, if, if there'd be a way that this bitter cup might pass from me, let it be. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And Luke tells us that Jesus prays with such earnestness in the Garden of Gethsemane that the sweat that runs down his face is as great drops of blood. Jesus presses through in great victory and on that very night embraces his betrayal and on the very next day dies as a substitute for our sin. It's, it's not that the islands of prayer and fasting are free from any temptation. It is that temptation is most intense in those places. On sacred ground, that's where Satan seeks to do his greatest distraction, disruption, and even destruction. And I want to encourage you to persevere, to persist in prayer and fasting, drawing near. Take those examples from Jesus' life. What was on the other side of Jesus' victory in the wilderness? An earthly ministry that astounded the masses. They were astonished at what they saw and heard in the teaching of Jesus. On the other side of that great temptation in the Garden of Gethsemane was the cross of Calvary and now an empty garden grave whereby our salvation is sealed. On the other side of that season of temptation is great victory. There is victory for us overcomers in Christ. Persevere in prayer and fasting. Don't quit. Don't give up. Don't cease to pray. And there's two ways to overcome temptation. You know what they are? We press through or we yield to the temptation. 
And far too often we just yield to the temptation because it alleviates the weight of that temptation. And we're not earnest enough in our want to be brought near to God that we would press through that season. But it might just be that what God has in store for you on the other side of that season is beyond anything that you could think or hope or imagine. Persist in prayer and fasting. We, we tend to sort of silo our spiritual disciplines. And often when someone comes and says, Brother Wade, I'm really struggling in the area of prayer. I just find myself leaving this discipline off. I'm really interested in reading my Bible and my, my devotion time feels good. I'm just not spending the time that I need in prayer. And, and, and here, here's the way it works. If your prayer life is not what it ought to be, no other area of your Christian life is going to be what it needs to be. You may have this intrigue, this curiosity, this desire for information that takes you back to the Bible again and again and again, and you may learn a great deal. But the the warm-hearted, devotional aspect of your Bible reading will never be what it's intended to be unless you're spending time with God in the fellowship of prayer. You'll never be the fruitful, effective evangelist that God intends for you to be apart from the discipline of prayer. I'm convinced that that's just another way of us alleviating the guilt of not spending the time that we know we should in prayer. There's one more thing, one more thing that I want to address, and then I'm finished. I don't understand this phenomenon, but I know that it exists. Often in sharing the gospel with people, I encounter people who clearly do not have a relationship with Jesus, but they say, but I pray. I'm a spiritual person because I pray. And I don't get that at all unless that means I pray on Saturday and Sunday mornings that God would help me overcome what I did to my body on Friday and Saturday night. Or I pray when I reap the consequences of my dreadful decisions that God would get me out of this. Now, I prayed like that as a lost person. And I know lots of other lost people who pray like that as well. But the idea of an ongoing prayer life apart from a relationship with Jesus is as strange to me as anything that you could imagine. I don't know if they're all just lying or if that's a real thing. But I'm inclined to believe it's a real thing. That there are people who, absent a relationship with Jesus, spend some amount of time in prayer, and that seems to have the positive effect of alleviating them of the guilt of their sins. Here's what I want to say to you. Apart from a saving relationship with Jesus... Your prayers are getting no farther than the ceiling of the room in which you pray. The only access that we can have to God who is in heaven, who holds the power to answer our prayers, is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. I don't know who you're praying to. And I don't know what you expect the outcome to be. And I don't know what you expect the product of that prayer to be on your eternal soul. But I can tell you this. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And no amount of prayer, no matter how sincere or how earnest you may be, can ever change that reality. It is by faith in Christ and faith in Christ alone that we may access the Father. Mankind tends to think that prayer is a right that we all get. 
And when we find ourselves in the foxhole, we call out, and God is somehow obligated to answer that need. And I want to tell you, that's not how it works. In fact, the Bible says that prayer is a privilege that has been bought and paid for at an incredible price, at the price of God's only son's precious blood spilled at Calvary. That's how prayer was bought and paid for. And it's through his name, it's through his blood, and through his name and blood alone that we may have access to the Father who has all the power in the world to meet any need that might arise in our experience. You may be a spiritual person or a person who prays periodically. You may even be a person who prays on a regular basis. But apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. Come to Christ. Come to him. Come to him. Come to him. You're interested in prayer. If you think think sending good vibes is something, pray in Jesus' name. Through his blood, through his blood, and watch the Lord move mountains in your life. I'm, I'm really not sure what it says about the church or us as individuals when we struggle with prayer, but I know it's not good. Jesus really is the treasure of our heart. Wouldn't we be anxious to spend time with him in that kind of fellowship. And there's going to be some of you this morning for whom that's a little awkward because you just don't know him real well. It's been so long since you've seen him. You really don't know what to say. And if if you'll just persist in that conversation, you'll find that over the next days and weeks that you have so many shared experiences as you see God work and move in your life that it becomes a natural thing to talk about what God did yesterday and what we did together and how God was working through you for the advancement of his kingdom and the betterment of, of his people. Let's go to him now in prayer. Father, thank you, thank you, thank you that like an earthly father with his foolish child, that you continue to deal graciously and with such patience with us. God, I pray that you would seek out and save the lost among us this morning. I I pray, God, that, that you would grant discernment, eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart to know that salvation can only come through Jesus Christ. I pray, God, that you would grant the gift of faith and create a longing for holiness within your people. Call the name of your sheep, and may they answer with boldness. God, I pray for the church that you would kindle in us a deep and abiding, burning passion to simply be near Christ. God, may he be, may you be the treasure of our heart. God, make of us glad-hearted fasters who would much rather be near Jesus than to enjoy the the passing satisfaction of an earthly meal. God, make of us glad-hearted followers of Christ who would gladly forego a few minutes of sleep, mindless inactivity to dwell in the fellowship of the God of heaven. Lord, we confess our neglect of these disciplines and ask that you would forgive us of our sin. Help us to walk worthy of our calling. In Christ's name, amen.